for your word and how true it is and how perfect it is and how inerrant it is. Every piece, every word you say will come to pass. And Lord, we just thank you for the gospel of John and how it's so different from the other gospels. And uh, we just thank you that all these ladies took the time out of their busy schedules today to come. So we just ask you to bless this lecture in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was looking at some different studies and a lot of biblical scholars and mathematicians have gotten together and have said that there's between maybe 300 and 400 prophecies concerning the Messiah and his kingdom. Now we know all of his first coming prophecies have already come to pass, but they did this study and they decided to just take eight of the prophecies. Out of the three or 400, they took eight. And the mathematicians figured out that the chances of just eight of them coming true, exactly like the Bible says, would be one in 10 to the seventh power. So that is like so huge. So that is so amazing to see that we're going to learn that throughout all this, these lessons that how much is come true right to the, every jot and tittle. So we're going to start with uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through 27, and it's the portrayal, arrest, and denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the 17th chapter, Jesus prayed not only for himself, but for his disciples. But he also prayed for us, those of us that would come to faith in Jesus Christ through the gospel. So it tells us in John 18, verse 1, that when he had finished praying the high priestly prayer that Vicki did such a wonderful job on last week, when he finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and he crossed the Kidron Valley. It was like a brook. Uh, incidentally, this was the same brook that David had crossed when his son Absalom had betrayed him. So I thought that was kind of interesting. On the other side of this brook, which probably isn't a brook anymore, is an olive grove. And he and his disciples often went there to pray and to be alone. Um, the olive grove we know as Garden of Gethsemane, which actually means in the original language, olive press. And this is where the arrest takes place. My printer double-sided everything, so hot mess. Verses 2 to 3. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place where Jesus had often met there and his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guided with a detachment of soldiers and some officials, chief priests, and Pharisees. And they were all carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Some translations use the word cohort, and the Roman cohorts would be something like 600 soldiers. So they came with a lot. They were, it was a lot of overkill. But the reason why was they had their perfect opportunity. It was nighttime. They weren't, gonna, they weren't about to mess this thing up. So Judas had told them where he would be. It was dark. The people in the city were sleeping. So they figured, okay, there'll be no rioting. They certainly didn't want this happening during the day because they knew a riot would break out. So this was clearly overkill, but that's how badly they wanted him dead. It says in verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? I love the fact that Jesus came out to them. He didn't try and hide. He didn't go in a cave. He didn't hide behind a tree. He knew that was coming. He knew exactly what was coming, and he stood up and made himself known. He was so courageous. Jesus of Nazareth, he replied, they, they replied, he said, I am he. And then in parentheses, it said, and Judas the traitor was standing with them. 
Now, the original Greek does not include the word he. That why, that's why it's signified really I am, not I am he. So that's the divine name for the self-existent one God, and they knew it. And what happened when he made this statement in verse 6? When Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Do you know what caused this to happen? I have no idea. I don't know. But perhaps it was simply the power of his name. I don't think anyone knows. I've read so many things about this. I think it was just him saying his name. It just blew them away. Um, but one thing's for sure. Jesus was making one point. He was making something very clear. No one is taking me I'm going willingly. Matthew writes, do you think, Jesus said, said this in Matthew, do you think that I cannot call upon my father for 12 legions of angels to be at my disposal at any time? 12 legions? It took only one angel, angel to kill 185,000 Assyrians in the Old Testament. So you can just imagine. Jesus was saying, I go, but I go on my own free will. No one takes my life. I lay it down freely. And again, Jesus said in verse 7, who is it you want? And they said again, Jesus of Nazareth. It's like they're going back and forth. I told you that I am he, Jesus said. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have lost not one of those you gave me. Jesus was protecting his own. Even thousands of years removed, Jesus is still protecting his own. We are being kept by his power at all times, whether we realize it or not. If we could see the unseen world, we would not believe how many times the Lord has kept his hand on us and we didn't realize it. Amen. Then we read something a bit frightening in verse 10. Then Simon Peter had a sword. Now that kind of scared me because he's a fisherman. So I thought, that can't be good. Um, he's got a sword. So he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant's Ne uh, cut, cutting off his right ear. He probably meant to cut his whole head off, but he had very bad aim. And the, ser the servant's name was Malchus. And, and John is the only one that identifies the swordsman as Peter. So Peter is attempting to take the matter into his own hands. He's going to save Jesus. He's going to take care of the whole thing. But he was really, in reality, stopping God's will, God's plan. He was fighting God. He had zeal but he had little knowledge. And I don't think we're much different than Peter, really. We know what God's will sometimes is, might be concerning in our lives about something we're supposed to be doing, but we manage to like find every way to skirt around it. I think Peter meant well, but he just, he just didn't know the whole plan. Verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Luke tells us that Jesus touched the ear of Malchus and healed it. I think he did this so that the will of God could go forward with no more interruptions. Peter, in doing what he did, well have gotten them all killed. I mean, think about it. Peter thought he was protecting Jesus. He had earlier said that I am willing to die for you. Peter said that to him, and I, I really think he was sincere. You don't just swing a sword in front of 600 soldiers and don't think something's going to happen. Um, I'm very surprised he did that. But Peter wasn't acting in the will of God. He was acting in the flesh. And Jesus is about to teach him a very valuable lesson <laughs> that very night. So 
Verses 12 through 14 say that the cohort of the soldiers with its commander and Jewish officials arrested Jesus. No charge. They bound him. No charge. Brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. In a few verses ahead, we're going to see that they call Annas the high priest also. Annas was at one time a high priest, but he had been removed from that office, and the office was given to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. It was a kind of a family deal, and they kind of lived in the same place, same house. That's what they suspect. And because there can only be one high priest, but due to the fact that they were the same family and Annas was the elder, I think the Jewish people just kept referring to him as the high priest. And it could also be out of the respect for the office, the way we call uh, President Bush the president, even though he's not the president anymore, it's kind of like a prefect, but anyway, in verse 14, Caiaphas was the one who had, he didn't realize he was doing this, had advised that the Jewish Jews that it would be expedient if one man were to die on behalf of all the people. Little did he know that God was using him to prophesy exactly what was going to happen to the nation, and he didn't even realize it. Verse 15, we're told that Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. We don't know exactly who this other disciple was, but most Bible scholars are inclined to believe that it was John. John was from a prominent family, and when, when writing, he often referred to himself in the third person. And not only that, John's mother was Salome, who was related to Mary, who was the cousin of Elizabeth, the wife of Zacharias, who was the father of John the Baptist, and Zacharias was a high priest. So who knows if it, I don't know. Anyway. That took a while to figure out. But anyway, it's not in this gospel, but in Mark, chapter 14 shows what might have set him up, might have set Peter up for a fall that night. Mark 14 um, records that Peter followed at a distance into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the gods and warmed himself at the fire. And to many people that I've, many scholars I've read said that this is kind of a recipe for disaster because he followed at a distance. Then he sat with the enemies of the Lord, and this may have been what led to his fall, because Jesus had predicted it. Verses 15 and 16, because the disciple who was known to the high priest went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, and Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back in, spoke to the girl on duty, and, and pulled Peter in. Verse 17, this is the girl at the door. You're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked. He replied, I am not. So that's his first denial. Verse 18, it was cold, and the servants and the officials stood around a fire and were trying to make themselves warm. Peter, again, was standing with them, warming himself, standing with the enemies. It is, it's my opinion that Peter should probably not have been there. I think he should have left in the garden. If he could not be right with Jesus, he should have left because there would be nothing he could do at this point to help Jesus in any way. He would only be putting himself in danger. And many times we find ourselves in places that we shouldn't be warming ourselves with the enemy, so to speak. Someone says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. I mean, I don't mean to pick on Peter by any means, but 
There's a lesson to be learned from this. When you place yourself in a position where you're surrounded by enemies, sin's almost inevitable. And how many times have we found ourselves somewhere where we shouldn't be, with people we shouldn't be hanging out with, and you know it, you say to yourself, I shouldn't be here anyway, but you don't leave. And then something happens. So that's kind of just my opinion, although a few scholars did say that as well. Verses 19 through 23. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus said. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I didn't say anything in secret. Why are you questioning me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? Jesus wasn't being disrespectful or being a smart aleck. He was applying biblical principles. In the Old Testament, there was a, a legal matter in trial whenever one came about. God told Moses that every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses in order to be valid or considered by the court of law. Jesus knew this was going to be a kangaroo court anyway, and he was simply saying, let's go through the proper means if you're going to try me. Let's bring some witnesses in and let them speak. The servant of the high priest slaps Jesus, and, the, and believe me, the Sanhedrin, they were not one bit interested in the truth. So Jesus said, if I said something wrong, testify what I said wrong. But if I speak the truth, why do you strike me? And then nobody said anything. It was silent in the room. You could hear a pin drop. Why? Because they knew Jesus was right. And what they were doing was wrong. It was illegal to have a trial at night. It was illegal to have a trial with no witnesses, no evidence. And it should have been done during the day in the public. And it should not have taken place in somebody's private home. So they had no anus. So they had no answer, so Annas loses his patience. He's had it. So then Annas sent him, still bound now for some crime he didn't commit, to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now John does not say what happened between Jesus and Caiaphas, but Matthew does. Matthew says several false witnesses were brought in, and when they saw they were getting nowhere, because they were bickering back and forth, Caiaphas, losing his patience over the whole thing, stood up and asked Jesus, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us, are you the Messiah, the living God? And, and Jesus said, I am. I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas flipped out. He got up, he tore his robes, which no high priest should ever tear his robes, and he uttered, blasphemy. See, I told you, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard everything now, his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And everybody stood up and answered, he deserves death. Then they started spitting in his face and slapped him. Verses 25 through 27, back to Peter. As Simon Peter stood outside warming himself, he was asked, you're not one of those disciples, are you? And he denied it. Again, I am not, denial number two. One of the high priest servants, now what are the chances of this happening? One of the high priest servants, a relative of the man of Malchus, whose ear was cut off, said, didn't I see you in the Olive Garden before? And Peter got angry because he knew he was really in big trouble. Denial number three, and the rooster crowed. Matthew says that Peter actually yelled out curses and started saying, I don't know the man. I don't know him. But Luke, 
in his gospel writing caught the saddest moment of all because Jesus was being moved from either Annas' to Caiaphas' place or Caiaphas out towards the courtyard. And at the third denial, when the rooster crowed, and Peter said, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed. The Lord turned around and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying that before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. All it took was that look, and Peter broke down. We've all been there. We have all let the Lord down. And I know I need to weep a lot more than I do when I sin. We don't take it seriously, but Peter was really brokenhearted. Peter truly loved the Lord, and I just think he overestimated himself. And we sometimes have to keep in mind, too, that he wasn't indwelt by the Holy Spirit at this time. So he just was not ready for this. In the book of Acts, though, we see a whole different Peter standing up, filled with the Holy Ghost, giving two of the most powerful sermons ever given, in which within weeks, 8,000 people were saved. Now, that's a different Peter. But Peter had to go through this to know not to rely on Peter, but to rely on the Lord. And that's the lesson the Lord has to teach all of us. We can do nothing without him. God wants us to take our failures and bring them to him. He can make us who he called us to be. This can only happen when we admit we're sinners before a holy God and trust Christ. We will have the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do whatever he calls us to do. Jesus before Pilate. Now we just left, left Jesus back at Caiaphas in verse 24. Now in the midst of Caiaphas's uh, fit he's having, ripping his clothes all over the place. He ordered the Jews to take Jesus away. He'd had it. They wanted him dead, and now they had the charge of blasphemy. They had something on him, so they figured, hmm, we're going to go for this. But they had one problem. They were under Roman rule now, and Roman, the Romans had taken away their ability or their right to perform capital punishment. And I read somewhere, I don't have it here, but I read somewhere that talk about prophecy working. It was only about um, three or four years before Christ died that they did have this right. It got taken away just before Christ died. So it wasn't that long before this. So it had to happen so that he would be stoned because Jews stoned for uh, punishment where the Romans crucified. So it had to be that way because Jesus would not die under a pile of stones. So they had to take him to Pilate, the Roman governor. So... Verse 28, then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. Now it's daytime. They can claim a legal trial now because it's daytime. In order to avoid a ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not want to enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Now, this wasn't even in the law of Moses. This was in the Talmud or the Mishnah or whatever they had made up of 600 laws of cleaning everything. It wasn't even one of the original laws, but they had made it up. This is the height of religious hypocrisy, of all religious hypocrisy. I don't know what it is, but to them, for a Jew to enter a Gentile home would defile them, and they would not be able to eat the Passover. So they did not want to be unclean. They didn't want to go in. So they made Pilate come out to them, either onto a balcony or onto a, a courtyard. So they all worked... Uh, 
so they all are all worked up about how clean they're going to be for the Passover while they're plotting to kill God's son, the Passover lamb. So this is what religion does with all its outward appearances. You have all these rituals of righteousness, man-made rules. Everything looks good on the outside, but their heart was dark as night. So verse 29, Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? He's expecting something big because he doesn't have time for this. So he says, what charges are you bringing against this man? What Pilate wants to know is what Roman law has this man broken? Pilate doesn't care about the Jews and their laws, their religious laws. He does not care. He's only concerned about upholding Roman justice. Verse 30. This is how the crowd answers. Well, if he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him here. What kind of answer is that? <laughs> what kind of answer is that? They dodged the question, didn't really answer the question. And this isn't Pilate's first day on the job. He, he knew it was a Jewish issue. I mean, he couldn't have cared less. So Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And they, they said, well, we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. Verse 32, this happened so that the words of Jesus spoken indicated the kind of death he would die would be fulfilled. Again, it had to be by crucifixion. The Jews were not one bit concerned about justice. They wanted him dead. Now, their method of capital punishment had been stoning. But again, like I said, they stoned when they wanted to, and, and, and Rome just ignored them. But this punishment had to be by crucifixion in order to fulfill the scriptures. So stoning was out he'd have to be turned over to the Gentiles, the Romans, for it was the Romans who practiced this form of capital punishment for non-Romans. All the Messianic scriptures state that Jesus would die in this manner, and Jesus himself predicted he would be crucified, and he was so specific when he said it in Matthew 20. We are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed by the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. That took took place at Caiaphas's and he will be turned over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged and crucified. And on the third day he would be raised to life. And Psalm 22, they have pierced my hands, my feet. David is describing crucifixion hundreds of years before it even became a form of punishment. So that this is how great the Bible is about fulfilling scripture. But Jesus gave himself willingly up to fulfill scripture. Now, Pilate isn't concerned about whether or not Jesus broke a Jewish law. But when he hears something about him saying he's a king, he started to get a little bit concerned about, well, regarding treason over Rome. So he's concerned only about whether, whether Jesus might be a threat to the Roman government. So John never mentions Pilate going to Herod. That uh, was in the other Gospels. But apparently nothing much happened. He went over to Herod. Herod laughed at him and sent him back to Pilate. So he's, he's with Pilate. And Pilate went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus over to him and said, So, are you a king of the Jews? And verse, verse 34, Jesus said, Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, Or did others say this to you? And Jew, uh, um, verse 35, Pilate says, Am I a Jew? Like he didn't care. It was your people and your chief priests who handed over to, you over to me. What is it that you have done? Now Jesus is about to explain just what kind of king he really is. Jesus says in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting for me and prevent my arrest by the Jews. 
but now my kingdom is from another place. This is a very significant statement because if you're a believer and you belong to Christ, this is the kingdom you're really from, the one Jesus is talking about. This world is no longer our home, and the kingdom of this world belongs to Satan, at least for now. It takes time, of course, for the Holy Spirit to conform us and transform our minds. But this will continue to happen where we feel more uncomfortable in this world and more comfortable wanting to be in the next world. We live in this world, but we are not of this world. But Pilate is not one bit impressed with Jesus' claims to be a king or what kind of kingdom he has. He apparently did not see Jesus as a threat now. Verse 37, so you are a king, he says. Jesus said, you're right in saying I'm a king. And in fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And verse 38 says, Pilate says, what is truth? Almost like sarcastically. He wasn't one bit interested in truth. It is amazing to me that Pilate could say, what is truth? When he's staring truth right in the face. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But Pilate didn't care about the truth. He only cared about worked out what works out best for him. Whatever's going to work out best for him. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for charging him. And that was it. Well, now, this, now the Jews aren't happy. They're all starting to get a little bit restless here. So now he has to go to plan B real fast. But, but it's your custom for me to release one prisoner on the time of Passover. Who do you want me to release, the king of the Jews? And right away they showed it back. No, not him. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a man who had taken part in a rebellion. But Luke also tells us he was a murderer. Now, Pilate could see the crowd was getting out of control, something he could not afford to let happen. He's already skating on thin ice with Tiberius, Caesar Tiberius, for past offenses he had done. He hated the Jews. He, he taunted them all the time. Luke says he slaughtered some of them in the temple when they were worship, worshiping a while back. And if this crowd gets out of hand, this could mean his job or his life. So... Jesus, on his way to his death, even reached out, out to Pilate with the truth, but Pilate rejected it, and that was it. So he participated in the killing of the Prince of Peace. So what have we really learned from this chapter? There's just so much in it. But we know, number one, Jesus was not a victim. He was a victor. No one took his life from him. He laid it down freely for sinners like you and me. He is sovereign over every single thing that happened to him in the universe and every single thing that happens to us in the universe. Number two, Jesus fulfilled all prophecy perfectly in his first coming. He will do the same in his second coming. Number three, Jesus protected his disciples in the garden and he continues to protect us today. He will not lose one of those that the father has given him. So we have assurance and security. Number four, Peter's denial of Jesus teaches us not to overestimate ourselves but trust the Lord. I'm sure we've all been like Peter at one time or another in denying the Lord. Maybe not by denying him verbally, but maybe just by not saying anything or maybe by our actions or staying silent when we should have spoken up. Number five, Jesus didn't get a fair trial. So we should also expect that things in this world are far from fair and we may not get a fair shot of anything either. But there will come a day when justice will come because the judge of all the universe will sit on his throne and make all things wrong right. Let's pray.
Thank you, Lord, for your word. And just, Lord, bring, bring it into our hearts, Lord, that we would obey it and really digest it, Lord, and not just be hearers of the word, but doers. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.